morning. Can you guys hear me okay? All right, great. Um, the microphone will, will fall off my ear at some point during this time, and feel free to laugh when that happens. Uh, my name is Matt Allen. I uh, uh, serve as a treasurer here right now. We've been here for nine years. Uh, you may have been in some Sunday school classes with me, but um, just a, a, that's a little bit about me. If you have any questions, we can talk later. But if you would uh, open your Bible to the book of Revelation this morning, uh, it's the last book in the Bible. And if you've been with us for the past couple of uh, months, almost a year now, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation. That's what we do uh, here at Calvary. If you're new with us, we've we take a book of the Bible and, and work through it. Um, don't worry, I'm not the normal pastor here. So uh, at the end of this, you'll be like, wow, uh, he set a, a very good bar for the next pastor coming in. Um, but uh, yeah, so we're going to be in, in Revelation chapter 20. It's almost towards the end of, of Revelation. Uh, and we're going to be in verses 11 through, uh, through 15. So I'm going to read and then we'll pray. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence the earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written out for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them that by patience and comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we pray that prayer from the book of common prayer from uh, several centuries ago, God, we're reminded of the steadfastness of your word, Father, how it is true today as it was true 500 years ago, as it was true 2,000 years ago. And Father, we're reminded that uh, we still need it today as much as we have ever needed it, as much as your people ever have. So, Father, I pray that you would speak through your word now to us. Uh, Father, that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say, that you would open our minds to, to understand that, Father, that you would uh, just be with us this morning and help us to worship you. Father, that this would be a continued time of, of just offering ourselves up to you, that you might be glorified, and that we might leave here knowing you just a little bit more. Uh, thank you for all that you've done this morning. It's in Christ's name. So Vincent van Gogh was a Dutch painter who lived at the end of the 19th century. A post-impressionist painter. You can flip the slide if you want. Um, he lived a very troubled life. Van Gogh found himself living in an asylum in St. Remy, France uh, in 1889. It was towards the last, uh, the last year of his life. Uh, it, it was during this day that Van Gogh painted perhaps his most famous painting, which is The Starry Night. Uh, if you look at it, the painting evokes uh, you know, angst or, or sadness, um, but there's also like a, a sense of wonder, right? When you look at the, at the grandeur of the cosmos there, uh, you, there's a sense of smallness, right? As you look at the stars and, and, and see how they're related to the village and how, how if you were looking up in that sky, how you might feel small as well. And there's an enormous cypress tree you see off on the, the, the right side here 
that, uh, that looms over the valley, and, and maybe that represents death. Uh, Van Gogh loves cypress trees, so he threw one in there. Now, of course, this is not exactly what the village of St. Remy looks like. Yeah, uh, as you can see in the, in the next slide here on the left, that's the actual village. Right? So, so Van Gogh took, uh, took his view, and he changed it. Right? He, he removed an entire section of the village over here. He, he made it a mountain rather than just a, a plain of trees. Yeah, I mentioned the cypress tree. That's not there. And then maybe um, perhaps most noticeable is the extinction-sized meteor shower or uh, the, the star field that's up there that, um, that's in the middle of the sky. And Van Gogh did that intentionally, right? Golly. Uh, he wanted to impress upon us a way that he saw the world. Right now, now, it's this idea that we need to keep in mind as we approach Revelation. Right? It's filled with images that range from slightly unusual to, to downright bizarre. But John uses these images to communicate a truth that he, of God and his salvation for his people. And at the end of the day, that's what the whole Bible is about. Right? It's about pointing us to God, and more specifically to the Son and his gospel message. So with that in mind, we're going to, we're going to address the, the passage that we read just now. And, and the vision that we just read is really no different from this painting, right? Uh, we find ourselves in a very similar place, or a familiar place that we've been before. We're back in the throne room of God. We were first introduced to this location in chapter 4, after John finishes telling us about the, the letters to the churches. Right, in chapters 2 and 3, there's the seven letters to the churches, then he's taken up into the throne. In chapter 4, he describes it like this. Immediately I was in spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and someone was sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 elders, and upon the thrones, or, I'm sorry, 24 thrones, and upon the thrones sat 24 elders, clothed in white garments, and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning on the throne, before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like a calf, the third had the face like a man, and the fourth creature was flying like an eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they will worship him who lives forever and ever, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Right? In this description of the throne room, it's brilliant light, you know, these beautiful colors, flashes of lightning, crashes of thunder. There are these creatures around the throne that are worshiping the throne's occupant all the time. They're, they give him thanks, they give him praise, they give him glory, they give him honor. It's loud, it's thrilling, it's filled with worship. That's the first time we're seeing the throne. We also see the throne throughout the rest of Revelation as well. And don't worry, I'm not going to go to each passage and read those. Um, you can do that. But in chapter 7, they describe a multitude of every tribe, 
and nation and tongue worshiping the Lamb before the throne. In chapter 8, it mentions a golden altar before the throne related to the prayers of all the saints. Chapter 11 mentions the elders on the throne worshiping, and it also mentions the Ark of the Covenant uh, being a part of this. And then there's also lightning and thunder. Chapter 14 has the redeemed of the Lord worshiping him, singing a new song. Chapter 15 has a multitude worshiping around a sea of glass, and the room is filled with the smoke of the glory of God. In chapter 19, we see worship from the small and the great, with the sound of many waters and mighty peals of thunder. Right? All of these are different pictures of the throne room of God, and all of these are meant to evoke the majesty and the sovereignty of God, his glory, his brilliance, his reign. Again, it's a place of excitement in all the previous times that John's described it. The vision here is different. Now John describes the throne with two words, great and white. Right? The, 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 the multitude there is described as the dead, and they're standing. That's all that says that they're doing. There's no more heaven and earth, for they fled. The books are open. There's the lake of fire, which we've seen before in other passages if you've been here. There are no sounds, no flashes of light, no worship song. It's still and it's silent. It's the same place, but John's highlighting different aspects of the throne. He's calling attention to the events here that he's not done before. With this new image of the throne, John, like Van Gogh, is painting a picture designed to teach us something about what he's seen, what he sees through the Holy Spirit that we need to know about how God views this world. And I think it'll be helpful if we look at each one of the components and see the differences, and then we'll back out and see kind of what his main theme is, and then we'll hit kind of what his, the final thrust of his, his message is today. So the throne... Again, John introduces the, the vision uh, with a picture of the throne of God. It's simple, great, and white. And there's nothing else. Right? The second half of verse 11 tells us that heaven and earth, heaven probably being the sky, have fled. They fled the presence, or the word there's also the face of God. Now think about that for a minute. Creation has fled from the face of God. What does the face of God mean? In Numbers, there's a blessing that says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance or his face upon you and give you peace. God's face is a blessing. God's face represents peace. With creation fleeing from the face of God, it's another way of saying there's no peace with him. Instead, creation's been judged. It's the same language that we see in chapter 6, verses 14 and 16, where the mountains are moved from their places, and people beg to be hidden from him who sits on the throne. It's the silence after the breaking of the seventh seal. Creation has been judged. It's ready to be made new, which we'll see in chapter 21. But right now where we are, judgment has come. But what about the throne itself? It's great and white, Right? It represents the power of God and the righteousness of his judgment. The judgment about to occur is punishment for sin and violation of God's holiness. But it's also vindication for those who have suffered for the name of God. 
It's vindication for all the times that a believer was scorned or mocked or, or made fun of because of a stance that they took that was right for God. But it's also vindication for every injustice done in the world. And it's vindication for every believer who did not go in and follow the ways of the world and instead stood by their faith and their belief and their hope in the eternal, eternal God. Right? It's the, cry, uh, it's the answer to the cry of the martyrs that we read in heaven. It's the answer to the cry of David in Psalm 13 where he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And so we have a throne showing God sitting in judgment. The next thing we see are the people. Uh, what does it say about the people? He says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. What is this? All right, this is a picture of the entire mass of humanity ever created. Right? There are some who would say that this is only unbelievers. I do think it includes believers as well for a couple of reasons. One, um, we see that uh, if you think back to all the other visions of the throne room of God, it has everyone worshiping. Right? So already in the throne room of God are believers there worshiping the Lord. And this, to this he adds, and we'll see in a little bit the, the, the people he adds, but it's the dead, the sea uh, gave up the de- uh, their dead, the death, and Hades gave up their dead. So it's bringing in the unbelievers to the believers in heaven. And so what we have here is the great resurrection. Right? So this is a picture of, you know, in, in the Bible you've got the, the judgment being described as separating the, the, the words used, the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares. This is that, that time. It's the, the same language, again, at the end of the trumpet judgments when the, when the seventh trumpet blew. In Revelations 11, 18, Revelations, Revelation 11.18 says, And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Right, so the, the, the group before John is preparing for judgment. And as I just said, the sea, death, and Hades have all given up their dead. That means all of the dead are here. Right? There, there's no place uh, for anyone else to hide. So that's the people. The lake. So we see the throne, and we see the people, and then he mentions the lake of fire. We're not told where it is, uh, but somewhere, perhaps off to the side in this vision, he sees it. Uh, perhaps it's on the other side of the people that are standing before the throne. Um, perhaps it's at a different area altogether. We really don't know. It doesn't matter. But we're told that it's there. And we've talked a little bit in, the past, in past sermons about what it is, and it's eternal judgment. Um, God is using, a, John, God through John, is using a symbolic picture graphically painting the torment of eternal judgment. This element links us to other pictures in the throne, Right? Uh, the, the fact that judgment is around the throne shouldn't surprise us. We've seen this in each one of the judgment cycles before in Revelation. Uh, we saw the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the reaper in chapter 14, the seven bowls, chapter 19, Christ riding on the white horse. All of that comes out from the throne. So this final judgment issues from the throne too. 
It's the culmination of the events begun with Christ's birth, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension that we saw with the Lamb breaking the seal at the very beginning. And finally, you see the books. So we're standing before the throne of a holy and righteous God who is preparing to enact final judgment on the world. We see before us every person ever created in a vast sea of humanity. We see the lake of fire off to the side as everyone prepares to be judged. And we see books. Right? And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged, and the things were written on the books according to their deeds. Right? So these books list out our deeds. Everything that any one of us has ever done. I've heard this described before in different settings. It's like a movie theater where you step up before God and there's this big screen behind you and then all of your, your deeds flash up before your eyes and the eyes of all of humanity. Um, gosh, I hope that's not the way that it works. Uh, I, I don't think it is. I've heard another way where it says that God reads through all of your deeds for all, all to hear. Again, I don't think that's the case. I think this is more symbolically describing that God knows everything, and he knows everything that you've ever done. And I say that for, for this point, that there are no activities left out of your life from, that he missed that might sway his judgment either way. At the end of this, we won't be able to go back and say, but God, I did this. Doesn't that matter? he say, yes, it does matter, and I factored that in. Right? So I don't think it's a point to embarrass us in front of everyone, I hope. But it's more of a God knows all, God sees all, his judgment is complete. So that's the vision. It's echoing a little bit. It's a very simple um, picture, right? It's, it's not as exciting as the other throne rooms. But there's a little bit in it that John wants us to know. But the point of John, John's vision is this. Judgment awaits. So I want to talk a little bit about what that judgment is. Right? So first of all, why are we judged? I think to get to that, we need to back up a little bit. Right? Um, in Revelation 20, we're approaching the end of it all. But how did it begin? Right? Well, don't worry, we're not going to read through the entire Bible to get there. But in the very beginning of the Bible, the first words were told that God created the heavens and the earth. Right? We're told that in the beginning, after God had created everything, including man and woman, his image bearers, I use that word intentionally. We were created in the image of God, right? That means that, that there's a part of, of the character and the, and the personality of God, not divinity per se, but that we reflect God and who he is more than any other aspect of his creation. And that's important, and we'll get to that in, in, in a little while. But we were created. And as a part of that, uh, he looked and said, this is good. It's perfect. And he rested. God was creating for himself a people who could live then in the garden that he created for them in a perfect relationship with him, enjoying his blessing. Adam and Eve were told to multiply to expand this people of God. God was in the process of building a kingdom, a kingdom of image bearers to worship him and have this relationship with him. If you've been at church any amount of time, you know the next part of the story. We ruined it, right? We ruined that relationship. We, I say humanity, uh, ruined that relationship by rebelling. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they gave in to the temptation presented to them by our great adversary, Satan, the devil, and they became rebels. And from that time of rebellion, every human born 
was a rebel at their birth, with one exception, but we'll get to that later. At that moment, God, in his justice, could have permanently judged Adam and Eve and eliminated humanity. He had every right to do so, but he did not. Instead, he instituted a temporary judgment. Mankind was sentenced to die, but in that judgment, there would be a hint of grace. There was a promise that one day a descendant of Eve would defeat Satan. And until that day, God would continue to build this kingdom of worshipers. The rest of the Bible, if you read it with that perspective in mind, it's helpful. God is about creating a kingdom of worshipers for him. And to make that last forever, he does have to eventually judge sin and humanity's adversary. But from the covenant with Noah, in which he promises to never flood the earth again, through the covenant with Abraham, in which he further clarifies what this kingdom that he's building will will look like and where they're going to live, through the covenant with Moses, where he establishes an earthly representation of this kingdom, through the covenant with David, which foreshadows the messianic king, God was pointing forward to a way in which he would redeem his people and make his kingdom eternal. So think back to the books now. In, in them were written the deeds of every person, right? Again, I'm not sure there's a, those are literal books, like some, some general ledger for every person, where there's a column of right and a column of wrong, and God or an angel or whatever is pouring over them, trying to make them add up to see who has more right than wrong. He's just saying we're called into account for what we do. The rebellion of Adam had consequences for us and continues to do so today. It stains us from sin at the very moment we're conceived. And to be very clear, everything we do from then on is marred by that stain of sin. Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all have become like like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all all of us wither like a leaf, and our wrongdoings like the wind take us away. Right? These are the things that we've tried to do on our own. They're the good things we do to try to earn God's favor. They're our open acts of rebellion where we turn our backs upon God. They're the actions we take when we thought we knew what was best and we placed ourselves on the throne, the throne of God, the throne of the one who is now going to judge us. And that's the most terrifying prospect of it all, that whether our deeds are made public or not, when we compare them, because we know them, to the pure holiness, knowing that judgment awaits if there's any deed that doesn't meet that standard, and knowing that nothing I could have done on my own has ever met that standard, I agree with Hebrews, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we're judged because we're rebels. How long will we be judged, right? So we've talked about, again, this before. How long does this judgment last? It can't last forever, can it? How do I know it's eternal? Couldn't the fire annihilate those who are thrown into it rather than just torment them? Wouldn't it consume them? And these are all very thoughtful questions for a believer or unbeliever alike. I would say first, we should observe in verse 10, prior to our passage, what we talked about last week, that the devil was thrown into the lake along with the beast and the false prophet before. And both the beast and the false prophet represent worldly institutions. Right? It's there we're told that they will suffer eternally. And it's into this very same lake that the judged are about to be cast. The fire is not literal, consuming those it touches. Instead, it's like the fire of the coal in Isaiah 6, pressing them out of the prophet, purifying his speech, judging him for his sin. 
This fire is judgment symbolized. Second, we see that death and Hades are both cast into this judgment. Right? So, so this death that we're talking about here is, is the, the first death. Right? So, so what is death, really? From this perspective, it's the separation of the body and the soul. Right? For, for those of us who are still here after we've experienced the death of a loved one, it, it, it's, it's hard to deal with. Right? It, it's a time that we grieve and that we mourn. But for the loved one, it's a separation of their body and their soul. Right? Everyone experiences that. Some move on to heaven, which we see in the, the pictures of, uh, in Revelation of people being around the throne. Some move into the second space. It's called Hades. Right? Um, and that, again, that's, that's uh, a Greek concept, but it's the idea of this is where unbelievers go to wait. Right? So, so death is experienced by all. It's a separation of the body and soul. And it's a temporary judgment for humanity and his sin. And I say temporary because, um, it's the, the, because we see in the resurrection here that we're looking at now in this passage that body and soul is reunited. So death, the first death, is this temporary judgment. And when we see then that Hades is representative of the temporary abode and it is cast into the lake of fire, this first judgment of death is also cast into the lake of fire. What we're seeing is the casting of temporary judgments into the lake of fire. And that indicates then that the lake of fire is a permanent judgment for those who oppose the triune God. If you follow my logic there. And then finally, notice the description of God in this vision. Him who sat upon the throne. There's no brilliance of color or flashes of lightning there's no rainbow that we saw in chapter 4. And I think that's important. What was the rainbow? The rainbow was God's reminder to himself not to flood the earth again. And that flood was a temporary judgment on the earth. It was a restraint that he put upon himself. In this picture now, there's no more restraint. This judgment is final. This judgment is last. And there will be no holding back the wrath of God. His holiness must be satisfied. So then what is the judgment? I think it's spiritual in nature. The fact that the devil and his demons are cast into the judgment seems to communicate this. Those aren't physical beings. He's a spiritual being. Additionally, again, we talked about the beast and the false prophet being cast into it. Those are both figurative representations of unbelieving institutions cast into judgment. So it's spiritual and psychological, and it's real, and it's ongoing, and it lasts forever for those who rejected God and chose their own way. And this is the final time that God hands them over to their own way. So the judgment. This has been uplifting so far, hasn't it? <laughs> hey, Matt, we want you to come preach today. We've got judgment. <laughs> Yay. But it does bring us to this last point. And so while John's point of the vision that he has and has written down, the Holy Spirit's communication of that to John, is that judgment awaits. There's something that's hidden in the middle of it that offers hope. Right? He would say judgment awaits, but it doesn't have to wait for you. In case you missed it, there's another book out there that doesn't have our deeds in it. It's called the Book of Life. And the full title of it, right, if you were to, uh, to look it up in the library, if you will, the Book of Life of the Lamb who was slain. See, John offers hope here in that those who are standing in that crowd, whose deeds condemn them 
Because let's face it, everyone who stands in that crowd, in and of themselves, their deeds condemn them, right? We talked about that. We're all born rebels. If their name is found in that book, judgment's avoided. This is the way out that God foreshadowed back immediately after his first judgment of Adam and Eve. And God revealed this way around 2,000 years ago with the birth of Jesus. One of the major messages of Revelation is trying to encourage the saints or believers to hold fast to their calling. Right? Remember, John is writing this apocalyptic letter to groups of churches around uh, towards the end of the first century. Right? It, it, the, the, the letters in the first book were addressed to the churches in Asia Minor. Uh, this is meant to go even beyond that, I think. Uh, they're facing trials and sporadic persecution. Right? John's the last living apostle. He's the only one who wasn't killed for his faith. Um, and even then, he suffered torment. The uh, tradition has that he was dipped in boiling oil, which is not fun from what I've heard. And he's exiled onto Patmos now, which we've talked about before. So there have been martyrs. There, you don't have the widespread um, persecution yet that it gets worse, but you've already had uh, Nero lighting his garden parties with the, uh, the, the Christian torches, if you will, uh, living Christian torches used to light his parties. So there's stuff like that going on. But there's also just the stuff that you and I face every day, too, that where am I going to place my heart? What do you mean by that? What am I going to pursue? What's going to be my, my life goal? What's important to me? Um, are there things that, that I could get if I compromised a little bit? Right? These, these Christians are facing the same things. Uh, th- their world rejected Christ, just as a lot of our world rejects Christ today. And they needed to submit to certain authorities to need to survive. Trade guilds that worshipped pagan deities at that time were widespread. And because of their practices, they were all but closed to Christians. It was hard to do business without them. But if you submitted to that, what did that mean? I've got to feed my family, but I can't do that. Political situations could be simpler if one just forsook the name of Jesus. Or at least if one lived as a Christian in name only. Meaning, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. You can't tell by the way that I live, but I am. Right? They, these believers needed encouragement to see it to the end. They need to hold fast to make every effort to enter that rest of God. John's message to believers in this chapter is one of encouragement. He's saying, look, hold fast. Remember, your name is written in the book of life. This judgment doesn't await you. Anything that you could do now that would compromise that, don't, because this judgment coming is far worse than anything you could be facing now. Hold fast. That's his message to believers. But for unbelievers, John's message is a plea to grace. You say, where, where's grace here? It's found the names that were written in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain was not, were not cast into judgment. You see, again, every person born was born with the fate of the lake of fire. We're all stained with sin from our conception. And in reality, the deeds that are in the books aren't the cause of our judgment. They're showing why we should be judged. And let me, let me be clear. I'm not judged because of what I do. I'm judged because of who I am. 
And I know that because what keeps me out of the judgment is because of whose I am, the lamb who was slain. Right? There's nothing that I can do to get me into that position to get out of the judgment because I'm in judgment, because I'm a rebel. Said differently, I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. And we often reverse the causality there. And you hear it in questions like this. Am I going to hell because I do this? Am I going to hell because I've had a divorce? Am I going to hell because I had an abortion? Am I going to hell because I'm gay? The answer is no. You're going to hell. We're all we're going to hell because we're rebels. And the reason that we don't is because we're written in the, the, the Lamb's book of life. You see, it's the Lamb who provides the way out. John writes this vision of judgment, but in the middle of our passage is that book of life. In the middle of that passage is that offer to grace for those who are reading. Because once you get to the, to the lake here, once you get before the throne of God, time has passed. You see, the Lamb offers redemption. He offers pardon for punishment. It's the Lamb who offers the hope for the humanity to be resurrected to eternal glory. It's that Lamb who offers peace with God, right? But how? If a holy God cannot look upon sin and he must judge it, how is there a way out? Well, the Lamb took our place. You see, it's the Lamb who owns the book of life, and it's the Lamb who was slain. God is holy, and in that holiness, he cannot tolerate sin. It's against his nature, and he has to deal with it. And so he has to unleash his wrath upon that sin. But because God is infinite, his holiness is infinite. And so that offense against his nature is infinite. Right? That's why I can't do anything, because he's offended in his infinity, and I am not infinite. So what's the solution? At the end of the 11th century, a bishop in Canterbury, England, named Anselm, wrote a book called Cordeus Homo, or Why the God-Man. In that book he articulates the solution for this problem. He says that infinite God must be infinitely satisfied, and there is only one infinite being, and so he must satisfy himself. And so part of the solution is God. However, uh, and so the Son, the second person, the Trinity, is part of the solution, being a part of God. However, it would be unjust for God to punish the Son because the Son, being God, can't sin. So instead, uh, it's, it's man that sinned. So the Son has to become man. So the Son became man. And this is when, I mentioned earlier, that we're all born with this as, as rebels. The one who wasn't was the Son. He was not born as a, uh, a rebel because he was born of a virgin, not of the line of Adam, but of the line of the Holy Spirit. So he became a man. He lived a perfect life. He subjected himself to the cross. And he took upon that cross the sins of everyone that he is saving. And thereby, he himself, as God and as man, was able to take on the wrath of the holy God. Jesus is infinite in his divinity and thereby could satisfy the infinite offense. According to his humanity, he suffered and died, was resurrected, and ascended to the presence of God, the perfect atonement for humanity, the perfect representation for humanity, the perfect high priest for humanity. It is as humanity's priest 
as the sacrifice to God that Jesus can step forward and say, at the time that we stand before the throne of God, that that person is mine. I paid for her sin. I bought his redemption. I jumped into the lake for them. Our wrath is satisfied. We're at peace. And for the believer, this is the hope of the calling that we cling to. All of the suffering, all of the injustice that we see in life, no matter how great or small, will be rectified one day. In substituting himself for us, in taking on our sin, Jesus the Son gives us his righteousness. So now, the deeds that are continuing to be written in the book that stands before God are bathed or clothed or washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And so now those deeds are not filthy rags, they're redeemed white. Those who are in Jesus have his righteousness written in our place. Our actions are written in the books, they're seen through his holiness, and God accepts the perfect offering of his son. The believer finds himself at peace, so hold on. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And if you don't know that peace today, I would urge you to find it. If God is calling you, don't ignore it. Cast yourself before the throne. Admit that you cannot do it by yourself. And that the way to righteousness available to you is only through the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There will be people over here um, after the service who want to pray with you. If you want to pray, just come. Or you can pray in your seat. Just talk to God. There's no magic special words to say. right? There's, there's no set formula you have to follow. Just pray and confess your sins asking for forgiveness through Jesus, acknowledging that he is Lord and he is the one who saves. And I'm going to pray. Almighty God, give us peace that we may cast away the works of darkness and put upon us the armor of light. Now is the time of this immortal life, in this mortal life in which your son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit now and forevermore. Amen. So repeat the blessing from Numbers. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his face to you and give you peace.